All right. Welcome, everybody. We are in Revelation chapter 11, uh, part 7, and we are going to enter into Revelation chapter 12 today, uh, which we've moved beyond the halfway point in terms of chapters. So, interesting stuff. Well, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. We'll sing the word of God, and then we will uh, sit in silence, come back, and get into our verse by verse. Lord, we uh, thank you for life. We thank you for your son loving us so much. You gave your only begotten son, and uh, he lived like none of us could or would, and, uh, but like all of us should, and, and gave himself up uh, on behalf of us and our lives. We just thank you that you cared about us enough uh, that you became flesh and, uh, and overcame this world on our behalf. We pray that we will look to you in faith and we will walk in your grace and we will walk in your love and we come to be fortified by your word and by your spirit. We pray that uh, you'll help us to understand this difficult book and uh, that it will open up to us in its application to us and um, that we'll have some mysteries toward the book be solved in our minds as we uh, walk this walk. We love you, Lord. We seek you. Seek your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. One, two, three. One, two. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. Jesus 
Okay, uh, last week we read and covered the second woe is past and behold, behold, <laughs> and behold, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And now uh, let's read through our text for today, which is going to be verse 16 through the end of the chapter. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give rewards unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, great and small, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunders and an earthquake and great hail. So let's go back to verse 16. This passage, actually the remainder of the chapter is in, revel in relation to uh, verse 15, which we covered last week. Remember, it says, and the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So in relation to that kingdom, which we talked about, or kingdoms of the world becoming the kingdoms or kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, we noted what that, where it said that there, where he, it seems, the Lord and his Christ will reign forever, John continues to see more of a vision, and he says, and the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshiped God. So the four and twenty elders which were upon their seats, take us back to chapter four and five, uh, and in chapter where we're introduced to the 24 elders who are around the throne of God, and we read of them, and the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. We, we read that back in chapter 5, verse 14 of chapter 5. This passage seems to relate back to this description that we read about in chapter 5, this passage that we're reading about uh, in chapter 11. However, it could be the 24 elders have been constantly falling down on their faces and worshipping God uh, at everything that was leading to God reigning over all things once and for all over all the things of his kingdom. We don't really know. They were on their faces, verse 17, and they were saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty. We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. So we recall that the elders were in all probability representing the church, or the bride of Christ, or the body of Christ. They're not the same necessarily. The bride, Christ would come and take. The body is what continues on today. 
And as the representatives of the church, they may be expressing the hearts of believers always who, and lovers of God, and they're acknowledging his goodness for overcoming. There's the, 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 the 24 elders are representative of our voice because they represent the church and they're saying, we thank you, the, the, uh, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You have taken your great power back and you have uh, reigned now. So the kingdom has come and this is what is happening. Now in verse 15, we read about the Lord and his Christ. That's a line we read, the Lord and his Christ. And clearly differentiating between them. And we talked about that last week. So now in verse 17, we read the 24 elders saying, we give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and was to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. So I think it's important to remind ourselves that God is the omnipotent one uh, who has accomplished all things of his purpose and plan through his Christ. That's how this is talking. This is how it's relating. There is clearly a separation here. There is God, the Lord God Almighty, and there is his Messiah. And the, the 24 elders are praising God for him overcoming all things by and through his Christ. In other words, God so loved the world, he gave his only human, his only begotten son. In other words, it was God whom the only begotten son trusted and prayed to when he walked the earth. And it, God was in him, and that is who he related to, that God in him. And it was God who led him through his passion to save us. All because God so loved the world. He gave us his Christ. He gave us the Messiah. This is the one true and living God Almighty. Always one. Only one. And not more, working through all things to redeem the human race and the world. So John says the 24 elders call God the Lord God Almighty. Don't let this direct address that we read here, O Lord God Almighty, that the 24 elders say who are sitting on the throne. There's just one on this throne, by the way, when the 24 elders are around the throne of God. There's one on it, okay? Don't let it get muddied by man-made ideas. The Lord God is one God and there is no other. And the elders add, which are and was and are to come. The reference here seems to be the fact that God, who has established his body upon the earth through his Christ, is now unchanging. He is always unchanging. He's reigning in all the spans of time on the earth, he has always remained the same. God is the same. There is no changing with the one God. What he was in times past, he is in times present. And in this position, he has now had the victory over all things through his Christ, through the Messiah, through the uh, one born of woman under the law from Jerusalem. And here... Uh, the line here is interesting, as the elders say, to this Lord God Almighty, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power. Now, that's the way the King James says it, because you've taken to yourself your great power. And the implication seems to be here that his power was in some way shared by another until this point in Revelation because the elders are saying, we're worshiping you for taking your power. 
that is yours back. You are now reigning in this kingdom. It's pretty obvious, for example, that Satan possessed power here on earth before Christ overcame Satan and uh, sin, death, and hell. And so Christ on the cross and through the resurrection overcame that power. And that is why here in Revelation, the 24 elders are praising God and his Christ, praising God for his Christ, for taking his power back. When Satan reigned on the earth, he had power. He took that title deed from Adam and Eve. And, uh, and what he had the power of, he kept souls in prison and he had the power over death, meaning everyone who died, died and was still separated from God. They went to Sheol, the covered place, that, that separated covered place that Satan had the realm over in the uh, prison part. That was his capturing. And Jesus, Isaiah says, came to set the captives free. And so when Jesus came and he was able to step in and overcome the powers of Satan and actually say in John that the, the Satan's end is now, it's over. He has reigned over all of that, that um, he has had the victory and Christ and through that power of Christ, that all that power is lost and taken by the Lord God Almighty. We also have to admit that when Jesus was on earth, according to Romans 1.4, that he was declared to be the son of God with power, dunamis, same word according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. And so we know that that power was there with him as well. And then hearkening back last week, we also know that in the end, at the end of things, uh, at Christ's coming, this is what scripture said. These are two passages we read last week. Every man, talking about resurrection, in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he, Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. That's who this Lord God Almighty is, these, these 24 elders are talking to. God, even the Father, right? When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So when we read that in 1 Corinthians, that's what the 24 elders are saying. You have done it. The kingdoms are yours, and you have taken your power back into your, your hands. So I think that's what we're reading about here is the consummation of that, uh, that will occur at the resurrection of his bride, the church. And after this, as these passages suggest, God, even the Father, he comes forth as if to resume complete dominion over the world takes the scepter in his hand, and he exerts his great, victorious, eternal, lasting power over all things. Now, I had lunch with a partial preterist, extremely smart, uh, well-educated, trained by, you know, like the Biola dudes. Uh, I can't think of those guys' names, but they're uh, really smart men, PhDs, etc. And he believes that though Christ, though he has returned, he's a partial preterist, uh, that we are still waiting for this time for the kingdom to be God's, for all this to be overcome, and uh, for those things that are shakable to be shaken and left, to be shaken down. And, um, and he says, we're waiting for the time when God will fully write his laws upon our hearts and on our minds. 
I suggest that the, that he, it's fully, it's been done and God is doing that and has been doing that ever since the return. He says there's a gap waiting, waiting for that. To him, because there's still evil in the world, we cannot be in the place where God is the one reigning over all things. So what we're studying in Revelation here to him is something that's gonna happen in the future. So he's somewhat of a, a partial preterist futurist. He's, he believes Jesus has returned the kingdom is rolling forward, but we haven't got to that place where it's all, and I understand the thinking behind it. I don't agree with it, but I understand that thinking. If the kingdom is materially based, he may be right. But if God's kingdom is spiritually based, then what we're reading here has occurred in my estimation. And it's a spiritual thing that is happening. And so spiritually, where God reigns with his scepter on that throne, it's done. It's all done. He is in full, complete control, reign of all. No one has power but him. Through his Christ, he's had the victory. And we're just, now it's the engagement between the uh, people and him. So uh, his coming makes our need to explain a gap in the revelation unnecessary. Most Christians today even partial preterists, there's a lot of partial preterists, they, they've come to understand that the Bible clearly says he was going to come and he came. But they put a gap in between these verses and they say, we're still waiting for that fulfillment. Uh, so waiting for the prototypical Christian view of God's kingdom to occur, which will, which, and, and this is how it's always seen and described, we are all waiting for a day when Jesus will literally come down in his resurrected body, he will sit on a throne. If you're Mormon, he'll sit in on Adam on Diamon in, uh, what, what, city, what state is that in? Missouri. And, uh, and, uh, but if you're a typical Christian, he's going to reign from Jerusalem and he will reign over the earth for a thousand years. That's the view that the materialist return of the kingdom are looking for. Uh, because these verses about his kingdom being established and God's power being taken back, verse 18 now takes us to some responses to this. And this is what it, these elders say. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou should give rewards unto the servants, the prophets, and the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. So if you read all that together, what they're saying is we praise you God for Lord God Almighty, you have taken your power back, the nations are angry. So this passage, verse 18, seems to be referring to a, the whole series of events preceding the establishment of the kingdom finally upon uh, the earth in heaven and on earth. To all the efforts that have been made to throw off his government and to crush his church, They've all happened in earlier chapters, the seven churches. They've all gone through the trial and tribulation. And here in Revelation, we're reading about him having the victory. And, and so whenever there's a shift in power, and there's a mighty shift in power here when Christ has the complete victory and God reigns over all things, there is always a response from the people involved. And the response here are, and the nations were angry. Um, I'm not so sure that this verse is only talking about what it looked like right before the shift of power, or if verse 18 is a description of God's influence over the ages. It's hard to tell. So 
we read, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. All the way back in Psalms 2, 1 through 3, it says, Why does the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast these cords from us. I think these verses in Revelation and these verses in, in, in Psalm are talking about the same thing that nations do against the power of God coming in. Again, when it was happening, I can't tell you. I don't think anyone can. We can guess and make guesses, but just in terms of fulfillment of Scripture, what we're reading right here in verse 18 is clearly described in Daniel chapter 7. So if you're following along, you can pick it up and open up to Daniel chapter 7. And let me read these passages to you and just listen how Daniel in this chapter echoes what we've been reading about in Revelation. Daniel says, I beheld himself till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit. That line right there, ask yourself, who is the ancient of days? And we're gonna get to who it is here in this, it will tell us. Whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. The throne was like fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set. The books were opened. That's, we're reading about the final judgment of the dead, which it says in, in verse 18. This is the wrap-up of it all. It's not, we still have more chapters to go, but this, these verses are talking about this final judgment of the dead where the books are open. And I beheld, Daniel says, verse 11, then because of the voice of the great words of the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days. So the son of man came in the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days. Does that answer who the ancient of days is? It's the Lord God Almighty. And they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and kingdom and all people, nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So we have an image here. We have, we have the Lord and his Christ mentioned a few verses earlier. And now we're having the Lord God Almighty address the Ancient of Days. And Daniel clearly tells us that this uh, son of man would come in the clouds of heaven and he would be taken to the Ancient of Days. All very easy to understand what is being said here by looking at Daniel the prophet. The elders continue and they say something that is gonna open us up to something I want you to seriously think about because it, what it does is it uh, puts you in the place of uh, having to do your own homework, having to see what you believe against the rhetoric of religiosity which is spewed without thought. And it says, the elders continue and they add, thy wrath is come to the Lord God Almighty and the time of the dead that they shall be judged, okay? So I just wanna talk about that line Thy wrath is come, all right? I want you to ask yourself a question. Uh, did God pour out his wrath on Jesus while he was on the cross? Now, 
we have a proverb within Christianity. God poured out his wrath. I have used that phrase myself, not thinking. God poured his wrath out upon his son, okay? I read the most honored scholars about this phrase and none of them I could find said differently, going way back. And this is especially prevalent in Reformed theology. God poured his wrath out upon his son. In Romans 3, 24, 25, we have reason to maybe suspect that he did. Here's why. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Okay? Now, the basic meaning of the word propitiation, which can be translated mercy seat or bamus, it can, uh, it can be translated to appease, it can be translate, translated to satisfy. So when I ask, or what I have to ask, is why or what did the death of Christ or the suffering of Christ appease in the nature of God? In his very nature, God is holy and he is righteous. He is fair. He is just. We, have, we can have no fellowship with God because sinful things, sinful men, he doesn't relate to in terms of personal relationship. Thus, we say God's wrath burns hotly against sin and sinners will all be judged. And God, when Jesus was full of our sin, poured his wrath out upon his son so that we would not have to endure that wrath. That's the thinking. That is taught from Romans 3, 24, 25. That God made him to be a propitiation, and as that propitiation, that appeasement, that satisfaction, God now is no longer having the need to pour out his wrath upon those with whom have accepted his son, okay? If, if God accepts sin, then we, then we have a problem with the character of God because he, is, he, he can't accept sin, and I agree with that. So, in love, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. But the question remains, was it God who poured out his wrath on the person of his son, or was it our sin that caused his son to receive the suffering and pain that he endured as our perfect sacrifice with the end result being death. Because the wages of sin is death. That is the, that is the end result. Had Jesus never atoned and lived the perfect life, he never would have died a natural death. Because the wages of sin is death. But taking upon our sins, he was put to death. And he allowed it. He said, I'm giving you my life. You're not taking it. You can, you've tried to take it. You couldn't take it. I'm giving it over to you, all right? The passage here in Revelation has the elders saying to the Lord God Almighty, and your wrath is come. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So there's another instance where the wrath of God was coming in the New Testament. They were teaching, Paul was teaching Thessalonians, the wrath is coming, okay? 
This was written after Jesus' crucifixion. He has suffered, he has bled, and yet they are teaching God's wrath is coming. You with me? In uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.16, it says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sin always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. It's arriving, it has arrived, this wrath of God. And then even Revelation 6.17, John reports to the seven churches, for the great day of his wrath has come. Okay, it hadn't come before, it is now coming to them in, the, in Revelation, to the seven churches, which is what the apostles have been preaching against, about, not against, it's coming, it's coming. His wrath is coming. So, Christian pastors, scholars, huge on saying that Christ on the cross appeased God's wrath, satisfied his holy righteous demands against sin. While he was there, God poured his wrath out upon his son. I mean, he just, he just felt the wrath and anger of God. The way they put it out is God took his wrath out upon Christ instead of out on sinners. The problem then becomes, did Jesus pay for the sins of the whole world or not? If not, then God's wrath was gonna be poured out twice. It would be poured out on Jesus for those who would receive him and it would be poured out on those who wouldn't receive him, okay? But if we claim that God poured his wrath out on his son and that his son paid for the sins of the whole world, which we believe, I believe, he paid for the sins of the whole world, it's gonna be a double pouring of wrath. God will not have been propitiated by the death of his son. In other words, Jesus is on the cross and God pours his wrath out for sin upon his son. And then his son takes it and he dies and he resurrects. And then later on, as it says in Revelation, as it says in Revelation and Thessalonians, his wrath is coming again. His wrath is back. So he, he's angry again, you know? Either Christ on the cross, he took care of things or he did not when it came to, came, uh, to God and his wrath. You understand what I'm trying to say? If we claim that God poured his wrath out on his son and that his son paid for the sins of the world, we have God be continuing to be wrathful. And that's the problem that we have with the continued wrath up until this day. His son's actions were not effective. And the first on his son was his wrath. And again, those who didn't receive his son receive his wrath too. I don't, this is not sensible. It doesn't make sense. They all say it. It doesn't make sense to me because we have scriptures that say that God was going to pour his wrath out on the, in the future. They're always in the future. We don't have a verse in scripture that says he poured his wrath out upon his son. Did you know that? There's not one in the New Testament. Uh, there is that he propitiated. He, God made his son a propitiation but it does not say he poured his wrath out upon his son. And I would suggest that God did not pour his wrath out upon his only begotten son, but that God allowed his only begotten son to unjustly receive punishment and death on behalf of us. That's what Christ did for us 
is he died for us. He took our sin upon himself and he died and he rose from the grave. And guess what happens because of that? All are resurrected. That's a biblical tenet. All are resurrected because he died and rose for all. But he did not receive wrath from his father's hand. He did not. That would firstly make God unjust because his son was without sin. How is he pouring his wrath out upon his son who did no wrong? Did he let the, did he let the wages of sin take their place in his son? He did. He let him suffer and he let him die. But I do not believe for a second that the loving God was angry at his son and, and poured out his anger upon his son on our behalf. We've made that up. That is not in scripture. What is in scripture is God made his son our propitiation, meaning God was satisfied through the death of his son for his son's payment of him overcoming sin and death on our behalf. His wrath is still looming out there. That's why after Jesus rose and ascended and returned and did everything else, we have scriptures talking about his wrath is coming. He's gonna pour his wrath out upon you, and he does, you see? It doesn't make sense if Jesus paid for the sin of the whole world that God would come to Jerusalem and wipe it out the way he's done it. Because this, if that's how, if, he, if he's poured his wrath out upon his son, for the sin of the whole world, then what wrath would he have left to pour out upon Jerusalem? His son's wrath bearing from his father wouldn't have been enough apparently, but that's not the case. And you have to show me biblical scriptures to make it the case, all right? So, he willingly endured. God allowed his only son to unjustly receive punishment the hands of the Romans, hands of the Jews who put him there. He, he allowed his son, who bore our sin, who did no sin, to receive the punishment and the death that comes with sin on our behalf, which he willingly endured of love for God and love for us. But again, God was not pouring his wrath out on Jesus. That would firstly make him unjust because his, his son was without sin. It would make him doubly unjust because then he pours his wrath out again Upon, upon not only his son, then the people of Jerusalem, and then on us today, still pouring wrath out, you see. The standard illogical fare we have heard for decades is now anyone who will place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a personal savior from sin will receive the forgiveness of sins and the wrath of God will not come down upon them, but it's illogical if the wrath of God has already fallen upon his son. So what needs to be said, in my opinion, is anybody who receives uh, Christ by faith and trusts in Jesus as their savior will receive, um, uh, uh, has the forgiveness of sins that's been given them and the wrath of God is not poured out upon them. The wrath of God being the fire of God, who he is. It won't touch you because you're covered in the blood. You have placed your faith in his son. His son died for you, you have resurrected life after this life, and you have protection from God and the fire that he is. And he will not evaporate you with his presence, is the way I would see that. 
Perhaps the punishment of sin, which is death, was assumed for all by Christ. That's how it's a universal atonement. God's perfect son, who would, could, did pay the fine. He paid the fine for sin, which is death. All right? But his father, I do not believe, poured his wrath out upon his son, like everybody says. Uh, we all live again because his suff he suffered the punishment for sin, which is death. Uh, but God's wrath was waiting in the, in the wings, waiting to abide on all people of that age who would not accept the free gift that God gave the world to those people specifically as a people that he gave them his only begotten son and they rejected him and put him to death. That wrath was waiting in the wings. Jesus told everybody and the apostles, he told his apostles, tell them, the wrath is coming for what you've done. Hang on to your hats, it's not gonna be pretty. And so they went around warning everybody about that and that's what we're reading. So, the punishment for sin has been taken care of today, but not the punishment for rejecting his son. Does that make sense? Punishment for sin taken care of, that's death. Christ took care of that. But the punishment for rejecting his son being faithless toward the gift that he gave us, that still waits in terms of being able to abide in him. Only, the only lost people will incur upon themselves, to me, are going to be for building upon the things of this world instead of the things of the spirit. And building upon the things of the spirit is only possible by and through having faith on his son. So they won't be able to abide in the presence of God, Christ makes everybody, enables everybody to abide. So as Christ did in fact satisfy the holy righteous demands of God against sin, which is death, through his life and his death, God's wrath would be poured out on this group and is somehow meted out on individuals respectively for their rejection of his son as well. Note that it was through Christ's death on the cross that God solved the problem of sin. Note that. But nowhere do we read that his wrath was poured out on Jesus at that time. Uh, God has made a declaration to all the world of his righteousness at the cross. In the death of Christ, God solved the sin problem. Now it's up to every individual to receive this or not. And to receive it is to avoid his fire. To reject it is to receive his fire. It's not a good thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And that's the way I see it today. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, verse 18. And here we go, this ties us directly to the end. And the time of the dead, and they that should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. This last part of verse 18 seems to be referring to the great white throne judgment. Similar language is used in Revelation 20, 12 when we get to the great white throne judgment. It says, and I saw the dead small and great. So we have similar language here. So this is just giving us a, a little foreshadowing of, of the whole picture that's being said here. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged. So we have judged, dead, out of the things that were booked, uh, that were written in the books, according to their works. Here it says, and in this time of the dead that they should be judged, 
and they should be given rewards, small and great. It's all similar language. So I think it's just t- telling us this is, and when we get to 20 and 20, uh, 21 and 22 of Revelation, we're going to read the same thing. Now is the consummation of all that. It is completed. It's done. We're just getting a foreshadow of what that consummation looks like. The book of Revelation speaks to the coming of Jesus with reward, by the way. In fact, the last chapter of the book says in Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I come quickly, ready, and my reward is with me. That's what he says. To give every man according to his work shall be. That's what it says. According to that man, that woman's work, I am bringing with me reward. Um, That was the promise, and it was a timely promise. Behold, I come quickly in the book of Revelation 22. Quickly happening, cannot be a vast span of time. As we recall vividly when Jesus was on the earth, listen to what he says. These three verses are so great in just capturing what we've been saying lately. For verse Matthew 16, 26, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Ready? For the son of man shall come in the glory of his father with angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. That's what it says at the end of Revelation. Same thing. Now listen to the next passage in Matthew. Verily I say unto you, Jesus adds, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What do you want? It's right there. Jesus told them, he ties it in with his coming with reward. In the last chapter of Revelation, we read that he comes with reward. Behold, I come quickly with rewards, just like he promised them. And then Jesus adds in Matthew, and let me tell you something. There's people standing here that will not even taste of death till uh, the Son of Man comes in his kingdom. You cannot get around that passage. That's one of the, give me a break. That's why these really, really, really smart guys who study everything about it, they can speak Greek fluently, backward, Latin, and they know all this stuff. They're at least partial preterists because they cannot get around these passages and their correlation to Revelation. They just, in their mind, had to put a gap in there to say, well, we haven't seen the fulfillment coming. So the idea was Jesus, upon his return, would reward every person And I would believe that everyone who accepted the gospel from his apostles and from him would reward every person according to their labors, their work. And it's all through the New Testament. The Christians understood this and anticipated that Jesus was coming back to reward them based on their adherence to their faith and listening to the apostles' teachings to bear the the burdens of what heaped upon them, and they were waiting for Jesus to come back and rescue them and reward them for that patience. That in the final assessment of that kingdom and those who had part in it, God would, in fact, reward people according to their meritorious labors. Uh, This is a biblical principle that we don't talk about as much in the dispensation of hyper grace, 
but don't kid yourself. When it comes to our lives, we do reap what we sow in terms of the love that we uh, share through Christ. As, as he fills us with his love and we exude that, we will be rewarded for that. Otherwise, God would cease to be just, fair. The, the, the justice for sin and failure and death was taken by his son. The choice for us to live by him in love is what we're merited or rewarded with. Let me give you a couple passages. Job 34:11. it's Old Testament, but for the work of a man shall be rendered unto him and cause every man to find according to his ways. We don't talk about it, but it's there. Paul writes Romans 2, beginning at verse five, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up to thyself wrath against the day of wrath. This is after Jesus has died. There's a day of wrath coming and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. If those people receive the righteous judgment of God upon them with reward and punishment, then we know that it is a policy, it's a principle of God, that that is what happens with every believer. He goes on, he says, mentioning God says, who will render to every man according to his deeds. It's right there. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. He says it. But to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. There's wrath again. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, the Jew first and also the Gentile. But glory, honor, peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, to the Gentile. For God is no respecter of persons. 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, Now he that plants and he that waters are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. It says it. I'm not saying it. It says it. We read it there. It's in 1 Corinthians. That's to the, the believers at Corinth and to the all believers. We read it there. You will receive according to your own labor. In, in Matthew chapter six, the Jews came to Jesus and said, how do we work the works of God? How do we labor in the labor of God? And he says, this is how you labor. You believe on his son. That's how you work the works of God is you have faith on his son. And then in first John, it tells us that it is by our faith and love. We are commanded to love. And that is the labor for which we will be rewarded. Our love that Christ had. It is a selfless love that is not the kind of love this world talks about. It's a kind of love that is out for the spiritual betterment of others. We might summarize it that way. Galatians 6, 4, 5 says, let every man prove his own work and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burdens. So we have it at the very last three verses of Revelation 2. The books are open, the dead were judged of their own works. And of course, fitting in with the uh, context of revelation of Christ and of spiritual things of God, we have long been obscured in our study of scripture with heaven. So what's happening now is we read in the last chapter of Revelation, behold, I come quickly, my reward is with me, 
and give and to give every man according as his work shall be. That's what he did. Who specifically are mentioned as being recipients of rewards here in chapter 11? So I just read you the last chapter of Revelation. Who is specifically being receiving rewards here in chapter 11? It says, and he should give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, to them that fear thy name, great and small, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. So I would, of course, suggest that this occurred, you know, as well as I do in 70 AD, to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And at this point, we have one verse left in chapter 11, but in my estimation, this verse is part of chapter 12. It better serves to be part of chapter 12 than to have been cut off and added to the end of chapter, will you give me a tissue? Sweating through my, my brassiere up here. Uh, so if I'm correct in that, and the last verse of 11 should be part of chapter 12, and it doesn't matter, we didn't come up with, I mean, God didn't separate the, the chapters out. Some other guy did. But if I'm correct, up to this point, um, what we have here is a wrap-up of a first series of visions that John has had. Thank you. And that's ended here at the end of chapter 11. And now we, uh, and it ends with the seventh trumpet and it ends with the last three trumpets being the, last, the three woes and it's over. And at this point we enter into a new series of visions uh, which it seems are intended to describe the consummation of everything now. And it's, they seem to be describing a better view of heaven's operations now. We're gonna start to talk about things that are very, very spiritually minded. Uh, the, as we read chapter 12, you'll see that. We've shifted into a new series. So it's like the first series of visions were all about heaven and earth, things happening in heaven, a lot on earth. Now we're going mostly to what's happening in, in heaven. Uh, so we seem to enter a portion that speaks to the same period of the Antichrist and the influence of power affecting the destiny of the church. Most importantly, what was happening in heaven. So when this is all completed, we're Revelation eleven nineteen. just mark this, from 11, Revelation eleven nineteen, all the way through chapter 19, those, that block, uh, the way is being prepared for Revelation uh, chapter 20 through 22. So we have a new set of visions coming and it's preparing the way for chapter 20, 21, and 22, which is a wrap-up, a summary of the new kingdom in completion, Christ, God, all things, what will happen, and when we get to that, we'll discover it. So let's read uh, verse uh, 19 of 11 as it seems to be needed as the first verse of chapter 12. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings, voices, thunders, and an earthquake and great hail. Now, the temple of God being opened in heaven, there, of course, is a temple of Mount, a temple uh, on the Mount Moriah on earth still. In my estimation, this temple has not been destroyed because of the dating of Revelation, as you can talk about, as we've talked about. But... Uh, the temple on earth was a pattern of the temple that would ultimately forever exist in heaven. 
Um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter eight, beginning at verse one. And it says, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, the, the untrue tabernacle is the one on earth, not Moriah. It's not true because it's not perfect and it's not eternal, all right? which the Lord pitched and not man. So chapter eight of Hebrews is talking about this temple in heaven, which the Lord pitched and men did not build out of stones. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this high priest have something also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that the priests are that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, he says, that thou makest all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. So Moses was given a pattern by which to make the temple or the tabernacle for him, and he was given it. It's a pattern for things in heaven, the writer of Hebrews says. Verse six, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Okay, there is a high priest who is a mediator of an inferior covenant. He worked through the literal temple on Mount Moriah. That was a pattern of the one in heaven, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant, meaning the temple rites and rituals had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, if the first temple that was built on Mount Moriah that Moses got all the way out to Herod's temple, which is there now, if that was perfect, we'd have no need for a second temple or a second high priest in that temple because the first one would have been perfect. But the first one isn't perfect, okay? Listen, he says, verse eight, for finding fault with them, talking about that temple on earth, he says, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest and I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more in that he saith a new covenant. He has made the first old ready. This is what the writer of Hebrews finishes this with. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That's all the material applications on earth that were types and symbols, ready to vanish away. Why? Because it's being replaced by that heavenly economy by which the temple is there, the high priest was there, he's in the Holy of Holies, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. So all the way back to the book of Hebrews, the writer is saying the old is ready to vanish away. So when people bring up elements of the former covenant 
and try to insert them into the uh, covenant that we live today, which is spiritual in heavenly places, it is a complete mistake because that's gone. The writer of Hebrews says it's ready to vanish away. How does the writer say this would look in the day when this would happen? He says, for this covenant will I make with the house of Israel after those days. And by the way, we are all Israel adopted in by faith in Christ. Paul makes that clear in Romans. Saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. You know what that's saying? That in all those 1530 years where we didn't have a written Bible and the Catholic church had dominance over the written word, God was able to keep his church of believers going by writing his laws on the hearts of people by the spirit. That's what it's telling us. We have resurrected the need for written law at the Reformation. But in reality, he did this a long time ago with the new covenant because the old one was ready to vanish away. The new one from heaven began to be administered. If it was ready to pass away, then what was ready to replace it and enter in at that time? And where would the temple of God be? In heaven as in a holy temple of which that on earth was the emblem of the holy temple. So when it is said that there, that that was opened in heaven. The meaning is, in my estimation, that John was permitted to look into that heavenly temple. The temple, heaven was opened, okay? And he could see him in his glory. And there was seen in the, his temple the ark of, the, of his testament. Apparently, the very interior of the heavenly temple was laid open, and John was able to see into the hidden mysteries contained therein. And I would suggest that where John was seeing so much of what would be occurring uh, there in heaven, he was now seeing what was primarily in, in heaven for good and was going to remain there. So doing this, he was presented with signs that were always associated with God in heaven. And uh, he says, and there was seen in his temple the ark of this testament. And then he gives us some signs that always accompany, and we don't know if this were literal, actual uh, things, but he's able to, he describes it this way, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. All of those are symbols used by John. We don't know if they were actual or if they were just emblematic of what it's like in that holy of holies when it was open and he could see in and see the Ark of the Covenant. All these things that are just terrifying for the human eye to see. We'll pick it up uh, and cover chapter 12 then uh, next week. If that is the heat, my wife is going to join the heavenly temple on high. It <laughs> turns off. Uh, questions or comments? Back, Wendy, back there. Hi, Sean. Hi. This is Patrick. Um, so God didn't pour his wrath out on Christ? No. So, I, so your, your justification for that is our sins brought him to the cross, not the wrath. Well, of course, our sins brought him to the cross. What I mean is that... What's the payment for sin is death. That's what he suffered on the cross. Praise God. Yeah. Check it, test it. Go test it. When people say, Patrick, oh, that's not true. You have to say, well, you got to show me where it says that. And they won't be able to show you anywhere. They'll use the word propitiation, that God made him a propitiation for our sin. But 
you got to then say, well, then if that's true, how is he still angry and still pouring his wrath out? What was the purpose in his pouring his wrath out on the, why is his son paying in pain for God's wrath and other humans are going to pay for his wrath later on being wiped out by the millions in Jerusalem? So that's the thinking, Patrick. Welcome. Anything else? Jonathan up front. Wendy, get a move on. Um, Elaine, you guys don't leave. I, uh, I have to talk, tell you about somebody. Okay. Uh, great message, Sean. I Thank you, John. I think you're on point. So in uh, chapter 18, where it talks about the nations were, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the yeah. prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Yeah. There's a video that I want to share with uh, all the viewers uh, that are on YouTube. Uh -huh. It's called Heaven Pictures, A Trip to Heaven. Hmm. And I'd like to give the guy who created the video and, and the pictures the benefit of the doubt that he was giving a true testimony of this uh, near-death experience uh, of going to heaven and witnessing the amazing mansions that exist there. And it's just a beautiful video of art mm. uh, that I just, I just absolutely loved it. You're related to that. Yeah. And uh, it talks about the rewards that uh, we are given and uh, through, through the judgment of our works and the, the place that our hearts, where they are at the time of doing them. Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. That it? Okay. Let's pray. Oh, uh, yeah. Lord, we uh, thank you. Pray for your spirit to be with us and help us to uh, especially take this, this, uh, this idea of your wrath and help us to uh, consider it. Talk with other believers. Open up the scripture and uh, see what that's about and see if that's just a line we've created or if there's truth to it. And I'll stand corrected if we can... Uh, if we can uh, prove it through scripture and through your spirit. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling. That's everybody, uh, but especially those who are in the midst of a great difficulty with job loss and life loss and all the things that come with being human in this state, and you tell us to pray, and so we do as a body. And we pray for Keaton, who was in a car accident, and he's now in a coma. And we pray that uh, Keaton will be... Uh, uh, taken care of, his family will be taken care of by your spirit and will be cognizant of your presence and that you'll heal him if it's uh, your will. We pray for Gracie, our little friend, recovering from cancer and chemo and radiation. We pray for her parents and her siblings and those who are so worried about her and her little life. We pray for Diana, that her body will recover, that she'll have peace and comfort and mobility, that she will fight that depression that comes in on us when things start to change in life and you'll uh, make yourself known to our sister Diana. We pray for Lisa and her uh, experiencing uh, stage four cancer uh, without chemo and, and, and approaching it in terms of whatever your will is, let it be, and whatever treatment she is receiving, help it to be effective. Be with her husband, uh, Parrish, and their daughter, and friends, and family, and and everybody else involved in Annette and Mike and with the cancer that they have and the treatments and just everybody who's been touched by the, the dreaded disease and diseases of this world, 
uh, help us to uh, cling to you in hope and in faith and in love, uh, with love being the greatest. And we pray for these things, Lord, uh, humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek.